Hey there, creatives. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I am really excited to bring this next series um, to the show. It's going to be a special series dedicated to speaking with different uh, people, different therapists uh, involved in the Expressive Therapy Summit. If you've never heard of the Expressive Therapy Summit, it is an intermodal um, international conference uh, that really is dedicated to experiential learning and um, brings together all of the different disciplines in the world of therapy. There are social workers, there's art therapists, dance therapists, music therapists, play therapists, any kind of therapist really imaginable, and everybody sharing their experiential knowledge and hands-on learning um, activities. And it's a really wonderful event. And usually it's four days um, in the fall in New York City. And there is an LA component, which happens in the spring. Um, in this fall, I am interviewing probably, I would say eight to 10 people um, that are either directly involved in the summit or are going to be presenting on their uh, topic of um, expertise. And um, we'll be learning about their clinical practices um, and what they'll be teaching at the event. And so you'll get kind of a snapshot and hopefully in each conversation that we have, um, the, the key takeaways will relate to the work of creating something out of nothing, which is kind of the object of um, bringing your practice to life or creating that therapeutic tool, writing a book, whatever it is that as a therapist you're passionate about and want to bring to life. And that's really the focus of the Creative Psychotherapist podcast show. Um, in the first episode, I am interviewing Barry Cohen, who is the summit leader. And um, Barry's also an art therapist and a former art therapy educator. He also is the creator of the Diagnostic Drawing Series, which is uh, an art therapy assessment tool. Um, and in our conversation, we'll be talking about how the summit came to be. And you'll also hear a little bit about um, some of the roles that I've played um, over the years because I've been involved in the summit um, since the beginning. And it's something that I'm really passionate about and love. And I think part of being involved in the summit really allowed me to move in the direction that I'm in currently. I don't know if I would be here um, at this point without having participated in the summit and developing it and bringing it to life, sharing it with other people. I was very involved as the social media marketing person uh, for the event for many, many years until um, Laura Bader took over that a couple of years ago for me because I just got too busy with my practice. 
but I'm hoping that you're going to really enjoy the conversations uh, that we have. And um, so, yeah, so this is going to be the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series. Let us know what you think. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I am very excited to welcome my next guest today. Uh, his name is Craig Hain, and Craig has a slew of alphabet soup behind his name. I won't go listing out all the letters, but I'll describe the wonderful work that he's been doing. He has a private practice working with children, adolescents, adults, and families in White Plains, New York. He serves as faculty in the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University and the Expressive Therapies Doctoral Program at Lesley University, teaching courses in both clinical practice and research. Craig is a fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, where he co-chairs the Community Outreach Task Force, a group that responds to trauma events in diverse communities. He co-founded and serves as program director for the Kent Institute, which offers post-master's clinical training in the arts and trauma treatment. His most recent book is Creative Art arts-based group therapy with adolescents, which he edited with Nancy Boyd Webb. Thank you so much for being here, Craig. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, you taking the time. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time with all that you do, um, teaching, <laughs> running a private practice, running a training institute. Um, you certainly have your hands full. Well, so, I tell people I get professionally bored quite easily, so I need to I need to have a number of different different things that I'm touching at the same time, um, just to feel kind of sustained in the work. I can that totally resonates for me, um, in how I've structured my practice and the work that I do. I need that. I need the diversity to stay alert and challenged and grow and push myself to learn new information and uh, so yeah. That's wonderful. Well, let's start by talking about um, how long have you been in private practice? So I, um, that's a good question. So I have been in full-time practice um, a little over seven years. Um, and I was in part-time practice for a good six or seven or eight years before that. Um, at a certain point in my career, I had moved into clinical administrative positions. So I was the clinical director of an adolescent crisis shelter. And um, amidst uh, all of the wonderful things about that, shaping a program and training a staff, um, I realized that I really missed being in the clinical space. And so mm. I started a part-time practice to allow myself 
that space. And I worked for a long time with a foot in both um, practice locations and um, sort of uh, always had a real passion for working with kids who had been um, complexly traumatized and marginalized and were ending up in agencies and institutions. And there was almost a political aspect of that for me in feeling like these kids got such a raw deal in so many aspects of their life that it was yeah. important to me that they got good therapists who mm-hmm. worked with them. Um, but to be quite honest, at a certain point, I was going to have um, my first child who is um, turning seven in two weeks and uh, my only child. I say first, like there's another coming, but we're, we're quite clear. <laughs> He's That's all there is. Um, but I, I realized that there was a certain amount of toxicity from these environments that I was working in that yes. I didn't want to carry into my home anymore. And so that's when I made the move really right before he was born. I was defending my dissertation and um, he was about to be born. And I decided to make a leap into full-time private practice. And it was terrifying, um, but ultimately probably the best uh, professional decision I've ever made. Oh my gosh. I love that story. And I love the insight of how, you know, when we're in those systems for a long time, we don't necessarily realize how much we are taking home of that energy, that very heavy energy. Um, And sometimes, at least from my experience, it's not so much the client work, right? Not the client relational work that you're doing with them. It's the systemic um, issues and dysfunctions within that realm that become so, difficult to to really uh, navigate and make sense of and um, and it's not until at least for me when I pulled myself out of that environment that I was like oh my gosh I noticed that that most immediate shift in myself and um, it sounds like that was you know part of what was going on for you as well and recognizing you didn't want to bring that home to your baby Yeah, absolutely. I was the clinical director of an adolescent crisis shelter in Connecticut. And so I, a good portion of my time was spent advocating with the Department of Children and Families, the state's, you know, agency tasked with caring for kids who've been Mm -hmm. removed from their homes and in foster care for really basic needs. And I would find myself in meetings having Mm -hmm. to speak eloquently about why this kid needed a new pair of shoes. And I thought, my goodness, it's so important. And at the same time, it was so exhausting to have to kind of just say, this is fundamental, right? We can't do the higher work that's needed to work on um, feeling safe and recovery until you can just take care of these basic things for kids. And so there's a toll that I think that takes after a while on a professional. I, I totally agree. In my early career, I worked as a residential counselor in um, an adolescent youth uh, homeless shelter. And, but a lot of the kids that were there were there because there was no placement for them in, for foster care. And, and that would be hard, like seeing a child live in a shelter for nine months at a time because there are no family that would take them in at just how difficult that was to see, you know, and, and be with them, but it was a great job, but it definitely, um, 
very frustrating for the reasons that you're mentioning. Hey, are you ready to gain clarity for your vision and draft actionable steps to achieve the outcomes you desire for your practice? We at the Creative Clinicians Corner are now offering professional consultation services that help creative therapists organize the ideas spinning in their minds into a strategic map to launch and scale their private practices so you can breathe with ease and confidence and take the action you need to achieve the practice of your dreams. Nothing is insurmountable, and knowing your path to success will only inspire you to push through all the roadblocks, and you don't have to do it alone. Visit us at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com and see the really affordable packages we have for you right now. Well, you're right. It, it's, it's rarely the, the work, you know, it's rarely the clients, you know, like they, I think the kids I worked with, um, in some ways, um, because they had experienced so much and they had little left to lose, they were so available to one another, especially in groups. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was always so moved at the ways they showed up in the work. Um, yeah. And they taught me so much about being an effective therapist and, um, and, and what they really needed from adults, you know, to mm -hmm. feel safe and to establish trusting relationships that countered um, some of what life had already taught them um, yeah. about the world. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely powerful, powerful work. So you realized, okay, I can't, I have to step out of that realm merged into full-time private practice and um and now you also have the kent institute which um is a, a training program specifically for other therapists who want to integrate trauma work with an expressive arts therapies lens can you speak a little bit about how you knew that you wanted you you already had a thriving private practice you're already doing well there how did you know okay this is the next thing that i need to do well one of the one of the things i really valued about the um settings i was working on was working as a part of a multidisciplinary team um, and i really loved um, the treatment teams i worked with and and working in collaboration with them and i also really loved to teach but I think sometimes, um, while I do teach in university settings, there's a lot of political red tape that happens in <laughs> academic environments that can wear us on us in the ways that the qualities of other settings can wear on us clinically. And so um, years ago, um, early on in the history of the Expressive Therapy Summit, I put together a two-day um, trauma in the arts kind of um, symposium. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. And I invited um, a bunch of colleagues, some of whom I had worked with as they had written things for something I'd edited, some I'd met in person, some I had not. In one case, I brought somebody in whose work I knew about but had never interacted with. And we had not never been together as a group. And we got together and we went to lunch in the middle of the first day. And I think there was just such a natural simpatico in how we thought about what effective trauma treatment is, um, where the arts fit into that, um, mm -hmm. what it means to be an integrative therapist. I think we all value clinical mm -hmm. integration and learning from other disciplines and other forces of knowledge. And 
we began to dream during that lunch. And I remember saying, there are so many, there are so many training programs that are focused on sort of this one method of working, right? Or this mm -hmm. one approach. Uh, and, and there are so few that are postmasters in our field. You know, what would it be like to have this place where people can come in and really learn from a variety of angles? I went to Leslie and did my PhD there, and I loved that I was with um, other disciplines of creative arts therapists who have been trained in different ways, who um, had a certain grammar to the way they mm -hmm. practiced and a certain theory base behind what they did that I learned from. And so um, I really kind of crave those kinds of collaborative teams and that, that you don't get in private practice quite so easily. Yeah. And so that was really the beginning. And we began to sort of suss out this program. You know, we first tried to do a sort of two day public offering in New York City to see, do we have an audience for this? And then we began to shape like, what do we believe in? What are we trying to create? And I think one of the fundamentals, Raina, other than the training piece, was that we realized that so many professionals, particularly who are doing trauma work, are really isolated in the work. So they are working in settings where they are maybe the only creative arts therapist and they like their team, but they don't feel like their team quite understands what they're doing in totally. the creative arts therapies. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or just it can be really trauma by its very nature is isolative, right? And so we as professionals, I think, can get taken over by that. So we also really just wanted to create a supportive community. And that's when the really the biggest joy, I have to say, we're entering our fifth year. Um, I was just talking to one of last year's graduates who said to me that they began a peer supervision group after they graduated to support one another as a cohort. Um, so that's, you know, to really be able to see that flourish um, and to see that we don't just have creative arts therapists coming to train. We have psychologists and social workers and marriage and family mm. therapists and people who say, you know, I have an arts practice. I'm a clinician. I never learned how to integrate these along with creative arts therapists who know how to integrate them, but are saying, I really need a grounding in trauma. And so that's, that's what Kint was born out of. So it really came from the summit and, and those connections that um, developed in the summit. That's awesome. I have, I have goosebumps <laughs> just hearing about it. Um, it sounds wonderful. And I love that you're, you're saying this isn't just for creative arts therapists. This is open to and for other mental health practitioners that don't necessarily have a grounding in this work, right? In the foot that we do. Because that pushes, that pushes our work out so much further in allowing it into institutions that otherwise look at it as another form of recreational therapy or don't really fully understand um, the, the, the theories that ground the work and how impactful the work could be. Um, I know in the history of my career, I've interviewed for places and they say, oh, well, we would love to have you, but we just don't have a position for an art therapist. Um, you, you know, so just being able to expand it to other clinicians that can then in, inform and educate um, that we're all on the same page. We all have strong clinical training to be able to do the work that we're doing. And we're really not that 
that different. We're just using a different approach. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I think if there's something that makes me sad about the wider mental health field is that we remain really quite siloed. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, art therapists all go to their conference together. Drama therapists all go to their conference together. And, and that's why I love the summit is that there, there is this, this mixing of disciplines and mixing of conversations. And, you know, that, that siloing, if we look at our country or we look at the world, we see how unhelpful it is. And, and I think one of the things I noticed early on, um, you know, the creative arts therapists, I think really, I, I think it's fair to say that we grew as marginalized professions, trying yes. to make our way into the mainstream of mental health care. And so what I began to see was a counter reaction in my colleagues, which I, I think can happen in a marginalized group, which is, no, we're the ones with all the real knowledge and those other people there, the establishment, they don't know anything, right? And, and I think as a young therapist coming into a clinical team, I sort of felt a little bit that way, right? Like I've got the real stuff and these people, <laughs> oh, they were trained in this or that. And, and then I got in there and um, would work with my colleagues and learn so much from their approaches too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think some, some real mutual respect grew as a result. Um, and so, yes, I think there's a responsibility to push our work out into the world. I also think sometimes we put a responsibility on creative arts therapists to, only do creative art therapy. And, and so right. I think, you know, when we can also recognize that we are all clinicians and mm -hmm. we draw on different skill sets, um, that's important too. Some of my clients would be surprised if you told them I'm a drama therapist because there's, there isn't a lot in the work that they would recognize as something they would describe as drama therapy. Other clients come to me specifically for that and some experienced an integration of mm -hmm. that work with, with other more traditional approaches. Yeah, no, it's really beautifully stated. Um, and I resonate with all of it. I, I do a lot of talk therapy. And as much as I do, you know, expressive arts therapy as well. So um, some people don't want to do it. And that's okay. We, we can find other ways to meet them where they're at and help them through their process, utilizing the knowledge that we have from the creative lens um, and impart that in how we engage the conversation. So um, yeah, there's more than one way to get to the finish line, so to speak, Just Absolutely, great. yeah, agreed. So one of the things that I learned from spending some time on the Kent Institute website was the inspiration for the name Kent. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I just think it's a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. Well, when I said my colleagues and I found we shared a lot in common in how we think about trauma and think about the work, one of those things was the idea that um, our, our goal is not um, in effective trauma treatment to help people forget these events or help them to shrink the prominence of these events in their lives. Our goal is really to help them integrate them. And to understand that because they have experienced, you know, I, I, I'm resonating with, I, I just uh, ran some support groups for survivors of 9-11 through an organization called Voices of 9-11 that I've been involved with for many years. And um, it, it was just the 19th anniversary. And 19 years later, we are still getting people to who show up for these groups who've never told their story before. 
and it, it, it kind of takes your breath away. Yeah. And so one of the things I found myself saying in this group was, as they are looking out at COVID and thinking about how it's reactivating some of their old experiences, this adage that I've been through hell and I have survived and I can continue to survive because I have that knowledge. And so Kint Institute comes from the Japanese uh, practice of Kintsugi, um, which is a, a practice where the, um, the theory is one of beauty through brokenness. And so it is an ancient art of taking broken pieces of pottery and joining them together, often with um, uh, an, a gold leaf kind of paint um, to create something new out of it with the idea that that new object that gets created from the broken pieces is more beautiful than the original. And, mm. and so that for us was just such a resonant metaphor. And we wrestled a lot with how to incorporate it in a name in a way that didn't feel like cultural appropriation either, because, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that's an important consideration, right? We were so inspired by this idea, um, but none of us are Japanese. And so how do we bring this into the way we think about the work and our, our name and, and all of that? And I, and I think it, it has continued to be a resonant metaphor for us in terms of um, the style of teaching that we do and mm -hmm. also the way that we um, think about casework and, and formulate it and, and the way we practice. Yeah, no, I love that. I love how much thought and consideration um, was given to the name and why. Um, yeah, I think that's a really a good place for us to kind of segue into what you're going to be teaching at this year's Expressive Therapy Summit, which definitely relates to um, multicultural and pluralistic issues in treatment and therapy and uh, the role of the therapist. Um, can you speak a little bit about what you're going to be teaching? I know you have a small group of people that you're going to be teaching this topic with. So I'm very fortunate to be working with Britton Williams, Yasmin Awe, and Kat Lee. And we are um, doing a two-part um, workshop called Beyond the Good White Therapist. And um, there's so much about race in our, our cultural and professional conversations right now. Mm -hmm. And I think early in my career, um, I, I worked a lot with Black and Latinx um, adolescents and children, um, they were the predominant group that I was practicing with. And I think for a really long time, and I even wrote about this a little bit, I would find um, them placing me in a role as sort of the white exception, because they were trying to resolve the dilemma of white people have done a lot of pain to me and my family and my life. And here you are, my therapist, and I kind of like you, and I kind of trust you. And how do I resolve that dilemma? And so for a while, I think that felt really good. I'm the white exception, right? And, and there was almost a hero narrative to that that was yeah. really seductive. And I think as I grew in my career and matured, I realized that I had a lot of blind spots that I needed to do some work around. And people are talking a lot about what are the right books to read right now? Um, what are the right things I should be sharing on social media? Um, all of those sorts of things. And I think those are all virtuous, good steps in the right direction. 
But I think, especially as a white person, my learning has come from realizing that my colleagues uh, who are BIPOC have walked around with a consciousness of their racial identity since mm -hmm. birth. And they didn't choose to have that consciousness. They've had to have it for survival reasons. And as a white person, I have not had to walk around with that kind of consciousness. And so, and so in that way, white people are really behind in being able to talk about race and to understand it. Um, somebody said to me, you know, it's like we're in basic math and everyone else is like in advanced algebra. And um, because we just have not been pushed by the way we navigate um, our cultural worlds to have to really reconcile with our whiteness. And so our, the workshop is really intended to help therapists who have done some of that basic preparatory stuff, you know, to try to understand the history of race, to then think about, well, what next, right? How do, how do I enter these conversations in a different kind of way? Um, what might it mean to be a clinician who, um, you know, is also an ally and an advocate in a really deep and meaningful way? Mm -hmm. How do I recognize my blind spots? Um, and, and how do I, um, how do I take ownership? Um, you know, I think that the, the challenge is we've been taught that race is a, a good, bad kind of personal issue. Yes. Yeah. I think that is, part of what makes it so challenging for people to be willingness to that that to investigate it further you know like does this yes. mean i'm a bad person yes yes or or more to the contrary i'm nice to everybody i'm open i i don't i don't treat people differently because of the color of their skin and therefore i'm not racist as opposed to the perspective I'm white and I grew up in this culture and therefore I have to be racist. There is no other choice because I've been indoctrinated into that by, by subtle messages mm -hmm. as I navigate the world. Um, and I think that, you know, I've been, I've been reading a wonderful book, so it's fresh on my mind, called Dying from Whiteness. And the author, who is a psychiatrist and a researcher, part of what he was trying to understand is why do white people a vote for policies that ultimately harm them. So for example, he was looking at gun ownership and um, the statistics on gun ownership are fascinating because um, you know, um, we almost, uh, white people are almost disproportionate gun owners by two and a half times. And as a result, more often suffer and die from gun violence and particularly suicide. And yet that is all tied into this longstanding cultural narrative that roots back to the fact that we originally, in the period of Jim Crow, tried to disarm all black people and white people armed up with the idea that they were good people protecting their communities. And so we have two images mm. that we constructed culturally, one of the white hero who has a gun and one of the black perpetrator who has a gun. And so I think as we, we, you know, I sort of feel like each time I read something new, it's so immense, but so clear. And once you right. see it, it's very hard to unsee it. Um, and, and so I think that's, for me, that's, that's a piece of what we're trying to help people begin to work through. Um, how do I do some of this work on my own, in my own communities before I go out and have uncomfortable conversations with with people of color because if we think about it 
in some ways, we need people who are not white to help us see our own whiteness. But in that, in that need, um, A, um, our colleagues of color help us because we, we can be seen more fully and we can see ourselves more fully. But then we also put a lot on them right. in our trying to grasp this stuff and get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have, I have seen that and have heard that, and um, it's interesting because, in some ways, um, the books that our people of color colleagues are writing those are impacting our ability to see ourselves from this different perspective because we're seeing it from their perspective, which we've never had to see it from because that perspective was not taught to us in our history books. It, it even from like our, you know, elementary education perspective, we're not going to get that story about gun ownership that you just shared in um, the origin of our nation's history, but that is part of it. And, and we need to have that back and forth conversation. And, and, and I think part of the dynamic, Raina, um, among white people is that we tend to, um, you know, I think I grew up in the 80s. I grew up watching, really addicted to like, you know, um, Phil Donahue and uh, Ricky Lake. And as a kid, I would watch these daytime talk shows, right? So bad. (laughs) And, you know, there were always these shows where they would bring on overt racists. I'm racist and I'm proud of it. And there would be this dynamic where we as an audience would watch that. People in the studio audience would stand up and say, I think you're disgusting and castigate them. And we'd all feel better about ourselves because we were the good white people not the bad mm. white people. And so I think that's part of what, what we're exploring in the workshop is as therapists, we help people. And so it's very easy to see ourselves as good. And, and, and by and large, we are good. We want to do the right thing. But there's mm. a dynamic that happens where we, di- we say, oh, racism belongs to those people over there. And we mm-hmm. project out stuff and don't take ownership for it. And so, you know, if it, it's the white nationalists, it's the white supremacists, as opposed to being able to take ownership and say, oh, I see parts of what I believe sometimes in my gut in them, or I see parts of my whiteness that I haven't examined being expressed more fully in those people. And and I'm not going to cast them out, um, those parts of myself. I'm going to begin to take ownership of them and try to understand them a little better. Yeah, yeah. The, I think there's so many like subtle layers to that. Um, and as creative arts therapists too, um, that ends up really showing up in what kinds of materials we bring into our spaces. Um, I know I have a lot of young kids and so in the play-based materials that I use, that's a really important part of it. Am I I being conscientious about um, making sure that within all of those therapeutic materials that a child from a different ethnic racial background can see themselves um, within the space and feel as though they belong there, that they're not 
um, just coming into a white person's play space and borrowing their tools, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. It does, and I think I think some of the what I I've really had to learn as a therapist that's been important lessons have been that, you know, the way I think about trauma, it's going to show up in the space. It's going to get recreated in the room. And that gives us an opportunity to work it through. However, in that process, there's going to be rupture and how we handle that rupture as therapists um, is really powerful and potent. And it is tempting to look away from those ruptures as opposed to doing the hard work of giving the client the repair that they need around that and, and taking ownership for um, having participated in creating a rupture. Um, therapeutic neutrality has been a value that has been really unfortunate for the field because therapeutic neutrality has allowed us to, in many ways, step back and not see our role in what gets created in the room. Um, you know, it's this false idea that, um, you know, that I, 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 can, I can keep all of my stuff over here inside, right? And, and it's, it's just about the other person. Um, and that creates an unnecessary power dynamic. Um, oh you my know, gosh. That, yeah. Yes. 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 I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I talk with this with my supervisees often of, um, this idea of, you know, the curative factor in therapy has to do with the relationship more than anything else. We can have all these really fun materials and tools and approaches, but, you know, none of that matters if the relationship is not intact. And in order for it to be a relationship, it can't be, I'm this blank nothingness Um, and that person gets to do all the sharing. Like there has to be a back and forth. I'm bringing myself in or whoever the therapist is, is bringing themselves in uh, whether they believe or not that they're sharing part of themselves. They are sharing part of themselves by just being in the room, the space that they've created, the items that are, around the artwork in the room, what have you, the books on the shelves, all of that stuff speaks to who that person is. And um, yeah, I feel like we do a a real disservice with this idea of like, that the therapist should wholly never, ever allow some kind of disclosure, because Mm -hmm. that then gives the impression that it's not actually happening covertly because it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's always happening absolutely absolutely you know part of what you're making me think about is um you know that i think the other thing that often can happen you know this is this is like an attachment relationship so you know i think i want to be clear that what we're speaking about is not that my clients become responsible for my feelings right oh, yeah. i'm the bigger wiser presence in that room but what i can model is that my feelings are there in the space um and i can model that i can utilize them as important mm-hmm. information that i can take ownership for how they show up in the space. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the, that's the piece that I think becomes really important um, that we can, we can kind of own that and, and make that available to yeah. our clients. I bring our whole selves in. Um, yes. You know, when I say the, the kids that I, I started my career working with, particularly the adolescents who had complex trauma histories taught me a lot. I think one of the things they taught me was that stuff that smelled or, or uh, tasted like regular therapy to them, they, they wanted nothing to do with. Because when you have been through horrific things, and then you tell that, you take that risk to tell that to somebody and the response was, that must have been really sad, right? How distancing that becomes when, you know, what they really need to hear from an adult is, that's fucked up. That shouldn't have yeah. happened to you, right? And, and, and that's the level of mirroring that gets needed for that experience. And so, so that was a real important lesson to me that the, the kind of canned therapeutic language we use, not only is it like uncool, I think that's beside the point. It just doesn't match the depth of feeling or experience that people with trauma are sitting with. And I, I think too, it speaks to a lack of authenticity on behalf of the therapist because the therapist is putting on a mask. The therapist is putting on the mask of the therapist that they're supposed to be, the therapist that they were told they were supposed to be. And this is the only script that you're able to read from instead of being who they are as a human being showing up in the room to be with another person and sit with the other person as they unfold these really deeply life-changing and altering events that they've experienced. And those kids know if you are not authentic in the room, they're like, nope, you're fake. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So you you have to be able to be, be real, be a real person, take the therapist out. Like we know that that's what you're doing in the room, but get rid of that and just be a person. And that is the whole piece of like that whole disclosure thing that I was speaking to before that, that, we are still a human being in the room and that's what the person needs. They don't need the quote unquote therapist who's, you know, playing everything by the book and reading the script. Agreed. And I think, Raina, if we go back to the attachment relationship, right? Children learn very young not to have the feelings that their caregiver can't bear or tolerate. And so they swallow or numb or dissociate yes. those feelings. And what I learned so much from the kids is they were such adept readers that they were going to check whether their therapist could handle the emotions before they got there. And I, I remember very clearly one little boy I worked with who he and his brother had been through something really, really horrific. And at one point he was in his play, we were in the playroom and he looked up from his toys as he's going through a trauma narrative and he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, it's okay to cry now if you need to. And then went back to his play, you know? And, and, and I always had these moments where the kids would check in, like, I'll go this far and can you handle this before I keep going? And so it was, it was lovely and sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it makes so much sense. Can you handle my crap? Can you handle my crap? Because if you can't handle my crap, then good grief. What am I going to do? <laughs> like you're not the right person to really, for me, be in the, be in the room with. Yes. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. So I'm wondering not to like switch gears totally, but I'm wondering how much of this, uh, this topic, this work, this type of training and education, do you all integrate into your postgraduate certificate training at the Kin Institute? Is, are these topics um, integrated and interwoven throughout the, the coursework there? They are. You know, I think we, um, we have paused our certificate program this year because of COVID, because sure. we, we had a commitment to our group last year to continue that training online. But I think we're really clear that we, we want this to be in, in the room kind of training. And so um, we have a real opportunity to begin to look at and fine tune what we're offering. Um, you know, the goal is we, we offer a level one training, which is really intended for people to leave to sort of feel like I have a real grounding in trauma treatment and trauma processing in a phase-based model where the arts fit into that and where different art forms may, may be brought in at different points in the treatment depending on the goals and, and the client's needs. And, and so that I think is a really um, nice place. And within that, we're teaching self-care. We are doing some work on the therapist's identity and looking at, you know, the, the effects of gender and race and culture. Um, We're always bringing in a guest lecturer who's not a creative arts therapist, but who does something aligned to what we do um, to bring a different perspective in. Um, and we are going to launch when we return a level two program for our graduates that is oh. a deeper dive into um, things like complex clinical dilemmas and dealing with dissociation and dealing with some of these um, more difficult relational issues that come up in the work, um, as well as a little bit more population specific stuff. Our faculty, what I value about them, I think they're all really, really talented and they have a range of experiences and people that they've worked with. Um, but our goal in level one is to give people things that they take out and they use in their own style and in their own way of practicing and in their own voice. Um, and so then by virtue of doing that, I think our hope is in level two, then they can come back to us to say, okay, here's where I'm getting stuck. And we can begin to look at that and take a deeper dive into some of these topics that we've just begun to introduce in, in the beginning of the training program. Beautiful. Beautiful. When do you all anticipate being able to announce your additional trainings? I mean, obviously, I know we're all kind of waiting on COVID for things, but have you all decided on that? Well, we have decided that for uh, 2020 and 2021, our program is a nine-month program, so it runs the traditional academic year, begins in the fall and ends in June, um, that we are going to offer a series of virtual training options online that are really designed for the virtual space. So there isn't this sense of, ah, I'm missing something by not being there in person. Um, and it gives us a chance, I think, also to kind of offer some of these other things that are very 
talented faculty do in their life outside of Kent, um, you know, to people and, it, and for people to get a taste of, of the training program. Our hope is too that it also makes it more accessible. Um, you know, it, it, it can be difficult with a program based in New York City if you don't live in the tri-state area yeah. um, to travel, to ha be able to afford it. And so um, with the online trains, we really see it as um, uh, an opportunity to engage a farther reach of people. Um, and, then, and then the intent is that the following year, the following fall in 2021 into 2022, that, um, you know, the world willing you know, that we will be able to be back in person with another level one program and then launching our level two program for the first time as well. That's really exciting. Really exciting. Cool. Well, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. If people wanted to learn more about you, more about the work that you're doing, um, where can they find you? Or where can they reach you? Where can they learn more? Um, learn more about these training programs that you're developing? Yes, the Kint Institute's website is kintinstitute.org. Kint is spelled K-I-N-T. And we have, people can sign up for a mailing list there and that's the best way to stay updated. We send okay. out, you know, emails saying what we're doing, but also we really love to promote our community of graduates and faculty. And so we also like to promote what they're doing, um, which is why we've always um, fostered a track at the summit is that we love the opportunities um, in those workshops and the virtual ones we'll be offering to have some of our grads co-teaching with our faculty or doing their own thing. I mean, they, they are all um, really talented clinicians in their own right. Um, and then, and then as a private practitioner, um, I have my own website, which is craighain.com, B-R-A-I-G-H-A-E-N.com. Which I know we didn't talk about today, but if anybody is really interested in academic writing and needs consultation services on how to get published in a journal, you know, those kinds of things, Craig does that <laughs> as a consultant for that. And I can speak just from um, writing a, an, a chapter, a contributing chapter in your book that you do a phenomenal job with the editing process that he really knows what he's doing. So if you're looking for guidance in that way, definitely check his website out there. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, I, I, I think we have a real ethical responsibility as professionals to contribute to the professional conversation by getting our voices out there. And um, I think it's so important. And so I really love opportunities to help people begin to do that and think about that. Yeah, I just felt like it was really important to share because I, I rarely ever see anybody advertising that they do that. And yet in talking with a lot of uh, clinicians who've never published before, there's a lot of anxiety about doing so and a lot of unknowns. So just knowing that, hey, there is somebody out there who knows their stuff, has been published, has sat on uh, editorial boards of journals, knows what it takes to um, do that, um, to have that ability to be mentored is, 
I think, really important. So thanks for doing that. Well, that's really generous of you to say, and I, I would like to return that generosity just to say that um, as a business person, building a private practice, I know that that is, you know, for a lot of people in our profession, fairly new. And I've been really inspired, Raina, by how you have built your business, but also how you have trained other professionals in understanding getting into private practice. I think that's a really valuable thing for our field. And so um, I, I want to return that to you and just say that I, I have valued your leadership in that direction. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Craig. You're welcome. Well, I, I enjoyed speaking with you today and, you know, hopefully we can, we can do it again um, another time. And if you're going to be attending the virtual expressive therapy summit this year, make sure to check out um, Craig's session on how to go beyond the role of the good white therapist. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Craig Hain, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation and uh, learned as much as I did from Craig. Um, there were a few things that really stood out to me. One was this idea of really tuning into yourself and understanding yourself in order to make decisions in regarding to how you're practicing. Um, he had talked a little bit about what prompted him to leave um, serving in the public sphere and moving towards private practice related to different changes in his life experience and, and his family and really understanding um, how much he could give in both places. And that helped him clarify and make that decision. One of the other things that really stood out to me was this idea of collaboration and the spirit of collaboration and connecting with other people with similar visions and missions that you have to bring about change and serve in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, he spoke about how he and his fellow colleagues had connected at the summit some years ago for a symposium on trauma. And they all had a similar vision mission of wanting to create very specialized training around trauma specifically. Um, to help therapists help their clients. And that was how the Kent Institute originated. And I just thought that was a beautiful, uh, salient learning point. We don't have to go out into entrepreneurship on our own, unless it's something that we want to do. There are plenty of opportunities to collaborate with other colleagues whom we admire and respect, um, who believe in the same work that we do. Anyway, 
I hope that uh, you have found this episode valuable and that you consider registering for the Expressive Therapy Summit if you haven't already. Um, it's going to be totally online, so no matter where you are listening from, you'll have an opportunity to attend and not have to commute all the way to New York City for it this year, which is totally different, but also exciting. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Stay creative and stay curious. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.